Hi, everyone, and welcome to This is Growing Old, a podcast from the Alliance for Aging Research. I'm Sue Peshin, President and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Eric Dishman, the All of Us Program's Chief Innovation Officer. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Great. Well, to start off, I would like our listeners to learn a little bit about you, and then please let us know uh, what they should know about the All of Us Research Program. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the Alliance and have done partnerships with the Alliance in the past. I mean, at, at the core, I'm really an aging researcher, and in a good three decades of my career, I've really been focused on how do we accelerate research and innovation? How do we use technology to help older people age in place from wherever they choose, especially how can they get health from home? Uh, I'm a social scientist by background. I'm a family caregiver by experience. I was 16 when I became a uh, caregiver for my grandmother with Alzheimer's. I, I grew up in a very close relationship with my grandparents, and I think that's what drove me to always be interested in how can I use my existence on the planet to help older people have choices, uh, even maybe as their health is challenging them or other problems are occurring later in life. So, I mean, that's who I am at core. I came to the National Institutes of Health uh, almost four years ago because I had an opportunity. The, the other aspect of me that's germane to this conversation is at age 19, I was diagnosed with an advanced form of kidney cancer and told that I would have nine months to live. I'm happy to say that I'm 52 today um, and I'm cancer free now for about eight or nine years. You know, for 23 years, I was treated with 57 rounds of chemo. And most of the patients that I do cancer advocacy back then, as well as now, were older adults because it's rare that somebody 19 is getting a cancer and rare that somebody 19 is going to live with it for that long. So I, I've literally helped thousands of cancer patients go through their experiences and kidney patients go through their experiences. Mine was kidney cancer. And so I bring caregiver sensibilities to this, but also patient advocacy sensibilities, especially for, for older people. The ironic thing is it was a whole genome sequence, um, which we'll talk a little bit about in the context of the All of Us Research Program that helped to save my life and come up with a cancer treatment regimen personalized to me that ended up making me cancer free after 23 years of failed treatment. So the opportunity for me to go to the National Institutes of Health and figure out how can the kind of what we call precision medicine, or some people call it personalized medicine, how to accelerate the health research so that all of us could have that kind of um, uh, access that I did that's really been the transition for me. And, th and that, in fact, is the mission of the All of Us Research Program, accelerate health research and medical breakthroughs that come from that research to enable the kind of individual prevention, treatment, and care for all of us. Eric, that was so interesting. I did not know about your personal experience with cancer, so I really appreciate you sharing that with our audience and also the experience with your grandparents. I feel like so many people who are in the aging space had close relationships with older relatives, and I love hearing your story. You mentioned the, the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, which is top of mind, and I wanted to know how is all of us addressing 
the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, to help you understand that, let me back up and help you understand what all of us is. Um, it, it's the goal is to enroll a million or more people nationwide from all parts of the country and all walks of life to share their different types of health information over many, many, many years. Part of what we're setting up is an unprecedented study to really understand how is it that environment and biology, you know, environment in the sense of your social environment, how do those things come together to produce health or the absence of health for people? And if you take an example like Alzheimer's, you know, it's likely that there's all these multiple factors that lead one person to get Alzheimer's and another person not, or um, you know, one person to go very slowly and another person's to to go very quickly. And we don't really understand today precisely how to treat an individual with Alzheimer's because we haven't had research that's looked at people's lives in large numbers and a million or more people is large numbers. We haven't had research that's collected a wide range of data from clinical data like your electronic health record to your whole genome sequence, which is really unprecedented at the scale in which we're going to be doing that. And, and then to go look at how do diseases unfold and then look, be able to look back in time at the record and say, what were the factors that came together to lead this person to get diabetes and this person not? Um, and so that's the essence. This is what's called a cohort study. Um, participants will get information back. Unlike most scientific research, we really insisted about participant engagement. We have participants who are part of our governance of all parts of the All of Us Research Program. And the other aspect of our program is it's not just a few select scientists who will get to use this data. In fact, we're working to eventually even make it so that citizen scientists can, in the proper ways, get access to the data to do science. We want to make sure participants can get information and data back if they want it about themselves, and also that scientists can do that. And this is particularly true in the case of COVID, which you just mentioned. You know, like, like the rest of the National Institutes of Health as COVID hit, we had to deal with just the sudden, like, how do, how do we deal with this ourselves, our own employees? How do we make them safe? You know, how do, how do we set everything up so everybody can work from home? We also wanted to make sure that as one of the largest cohorts in the world, and certainly the most diverse, that we aim the, the power of our data collection at COVID so that we could provide some research insights. And there's really three areas where we're doing that. The first is an antibody testing study. If you've had the disease, you know, you form antibodies over it, or eventually when there's a vaccine that helps you to form antibodies. So our antibody study is to really try to help figure out this critical piece of the larger picture of like, how did this really start? When did it exactly start in the United States? Where did it cross over? And then how did it spread? The second is a survey called COPE, and it's really focusing on not just those who get sick, but all of us who are experiencing a very different life because of COVID. The survey is really looking at people's mental health and experiences each month as they're going through COVID. And then the third real area is really electronic health records. It's really important you know, for COVID researchers to understand clinically what's going on with a participant. So in our case, we've been in trying to help our partners who share the electronic health record data, if you consent to do that as a participant, to accelerate that. You know, right now we have to ask research questions so quickly about COVID that we need to like be up to date on what's happening in somebody's electronic health record so you can understand what were the consequences of them taking that particular drug or treatment to recover from COVID. And at the same time, 
you know, who are people at high risk that might be in exposure environments, but they're not getting COVID. Why is that? So with those three things, the antibody testing, the COPE survey, and collecting the EHR data at a faster pace, you know, we hope to have some historic impact and, and help people understand COVID. And because the diversity of our population is so inclusive of those who are, um, you know, African-Americans and others who are getting higher rates, Hispanics who are getting higher rates, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to make inroads and in trying to understand how, why are those populations hit so much more um, than, than others. Oh my gosh, I love this. I didn't know that you were doing all of that on COVID, and I'm sure everybody who's listening also didn't know. You know, before we move on, and I want to talk about this diversity piece, I, I just want to ask, are you still looking for more participants on those studies? Can people still get involved if they're interested? Sure. I mean, the, the all of us research program is ongoing all of the time, and, you know, we, we encourage people to go to joinallofus.org and learn about it, right? It's not just a COVID study. It's not just a genetic study. It's a lifelong sort of aging study. It really is to understand not just COVID, but all of these conditions and diseases that we, we kind of have a one size fits all medicine approach today. You know, as a chemo, as somebody that went through 70 or 57 rounds of chemotherapy, I can tell you, they didn't know how to adjust the dosages for a young person like me, because most of the dosages have been designed for people in their 50s and 60s. So here's a case in which we, in cancer, where we had studied older people, but we hadn't studied younger people. The same thing applies here, right? We don't really understand how to pinpoint treatment to an older person who you know, has had no history of heart disease and suddenly gets heart disease. It's like, what, what's caused that, right? And so this kind of pinpointing or this kind of personalization or precision medicine that we're really trying to support here, it's important for COVID, it's important for cancer, it's important for Alzheimer's, you know, all the age-related conditions, our resource, our public resource that, that you are contributing to will help us understand basically all major diseases in ways that we've never been able to do before and hopefully help then come up with cures or treatments that are much more precise and designed for you, your age, your metabolism, your genetics, as opposed to kind of the, the often Russian roulette or trial and error that, that we're often under today of saying, let's try this and see if it works. Let's try this and see if it works. Meanwhile, collecting a bunch of side effects that can impact you. So yeah, go to joinallofus.org. Um, and and by just by joining, your data will already start to make an impact on COVID research, but also all the other conditions that I just mentioned as well. Great. You mentioned a couple of times about diversity and how All of Us is one of the most diverse studies ongoing out there. And historically, research studies have really lacked racial and ethnic diversity. So I wanted to hear from you how the All of Us program is different and how you're working to increase diversity in research overall. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, if you look back at history in, in the United States and, and, and in even the National Institutes of Health, it wasn't that many decades ago that we did pretty awful things to some populations, African-Americans, American Indian Alaska Natives, and, and many others in the name of research. And thank gosh, there are now international protections in place to protect what's called human subjects as a result of those atrocities. If we really want, and, and we've had to have direct and hard conversations with communities that have been hurt by research in the past to build the trust with them. And we have a network of hundreds of community partners across the country 
who are key for us both listening to all communities, but also giving impact. And, and some of those community partners are, are age-focused and age-related as well, by the way. 80% of our participants who have signed up are those who are what we call UBR. They're underrepresented in biomedical research. And 50% of our participants are, are underrepresented based on racial and ethnic lines. Uh, we've really hurt populations by not understanding all populations because health can be different across racial and ethnic lines. There's over 353,000 people who have consented as of today on our path towards a million and 271,000 of those have already completed the first full protocol. And we're still setting at those unprecedented diversity numbers of 80% underrepresented and 50% underrepresented based on racial and ethnic minorities. That's one of the reasons our project is uniquely valid to, valuable for COVID, but again, for cancer and all these other conditions. We simply don't have the data because we haven't included racial and ethnic minorities and they have had reasons to be suspicious about what research might do to them. Um, so building that trust has been one of the key value propositions of the All of Us Research Program. If we can create the most diverse cohort in history and tee up the data so that scientists on day one can start their research, or we already have something that's so much larger than they could ever do, this is the kind of public resource that we build. And that diversity is just simply unprecedented globally. And many, many scientists are very eager to get their hands on the data because they've never been able to study diverse groups at any statistical power before. That's fantastic. And it also sounds like you're much more equipped to be looking at kind of cross-tabbing of groups. Because one thing that I know so many advocacy organizations have been frustrated about uh, with the pandemic and just in their particular disease areas of focus is, you know, is it possible to not just look at older people with a particular condition or um, African-Americans with a particular condition, but maybe older African-Americans or older female African-Americans, you know, so the ability to do that seems lost um, in a lot of other types of programs. And this one sounds like you guys are kind of getting past that and really painting a full picture of what, you know, something looks like in the real world. That's right. And, and I mean, what you just pointed out, it's like you, you could be African-Americans uh, of a certain age, you know, 70 and above in the West Coast versus the East Coast or a rural area versus an urban area. And this is what I mean. We don't we guess that all of these different factors may uh, play both at a population health level and an individual. But we've never had the data and the statistical power to really understand that. And that's why getting people of all ages to go to joinallofus.org and join is important. Well, people will ask me, why did people join? And I'm like, many of them want to learn about themselves. In an unprecedented way, we're giving data back to participants who want it. It takes us some time sometimes to get all that data up and the communications and the education in place so they would know what to do with it. Um, but that's a real change of the model. I, I personally had been in more than a dozen clinical trials and you know, never once got any of the knowledge or data back. And I didn't do it for that reason. You, you do it to give back, which is the number one reason why people tell us that they join all of us. But in this case, they could learn something about themselves or their family's health for the future that's important. And, and you know, so many people tell us they want to give back. But once they understand, it's like, oh, this might impact me in my lifetime. You know, I'm, I'm really keen to sign up and go do this. Okay, well, so you mentioned, you get you already gave me a couple of reasons for why people should consider joining the All of Us program. 
but I want to hear a couple of more. So you talked about sort of the self, you know, interest to learn about yourself, to share with your family, maybe to give back, you know, what are some other reasons? And then what does it becoming a participant involve? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, what we hear, especially lately, that the news of the diversity of our program has gotten out. It's really made communities who have been underrepresented start to stand up and say, wait a minute, like join so that we can have research about us, um, you know, and that's hence the name all of us, not just some of us. Um, most of the studies that we've used to create t today's generation of medicine were mostly studies of white men and eventually white women um, in, in pretty, you know, sort of healthy circumstances. So fleshing out the real America and all parts of it is a key part of the research community. So. You know, a lot of communities now are like, I want my community to be represented in research. And, you know, whether it's COVID or whether it's cancer or whether it's cognitive decline, um, that, that's a big part of it. As people have started to understand that this really is a different scientific study, they really, many of them have gotten more excited about um, getting their information. We're, we're fast moving towards help starting to be able to share back people's genetic information. And when we surveyed a wide range of groups before we started the program, two of the areas that people really wanted information back were about their environmental exposures, which we have the blood and urine, but we haven't run those yet. We're, you know, we would eventually we'll give people back information about their, their environmental exposures. And for those that understood it, they wanted information back about their genetics. Sometimes just stuff like traits and ancestry and other times, you know, um, health, health impacts that are gonna occur. And again, if this is a lifelong study, you know, you'll start to see that you contributed to research and then a decade later, there were some fundamental new cures and they may come back and actually help you. I mean, you know, that's one of the powers of being part of a longitudinal study. Most studies, like you have no hope of it actually impacting your own health. But in this case, uh, there could be near-term or long-term things that would actually impact your own health and certainly the health of your family. You know, the basic process is, you know, sometimes it can occur at an in-person event, though right now, of course, all of that's being held because of COVID. People can go to joinallofus.org. You, you walk through a consent process. We're very clear with people about this is what's going to happen to your data. This is how we protect it. These are the things that will be done and won't be done. And we want people to read that consent really carefully. Um, then there are up to six surveys to start. You can do them over a long period of time. You can do them all at once. Um, some participants are maybe asked then to go partner, uh, to go to one of our partner sites. We have hundreds of sites around the country. Again, most of them closed right now due to COVID, but eventually we'll be able to take physical measurements again. So it's like height, weight, neck circumference. It's not a physical, it's you keep your clothes on. It just takes 10 minutes or so. Um, and it's just some, you know, simple measurements to understand, you know, on the day that you joined the study or at the time in which you came in, what was it? And then blood and urine samples like you would st typically do for a doctor's appointment. Um, and then there'll be other opportunities in the future, right? Additional surveys. We're already, for people that have Fitbits, for example, they're able to share their step count data with us, which when you add that to their electronic health record data and see health over time may give us some really big insights. And then as a participant, you'll get over time results back and information and you'll be invited each time. Hey, we have genetic information ready for you now. Do you want to know the health related outcomes? Because you might not. And many people may decide not. Do you want your ancestry information? Do you want your trait information? Do you want your electronic health record data back? Because you've never actually had it yourself, right? You authorized to do it and we've gone through a lot of work to try to get it in a secure way, do you want that information back? It's, it sounds like participants have 
wide access to the data that you collect on them. But what do you do with the information that you collect? So, I mean, it is important to help everybody understand it's de-identified. So the researchers are not getting your name or your address. And we, we go through a lot of complex technology and human testing to make sure that the person can't be identified. All of our researchers have to take training and sign a commitment that they won't try to re-identify people. And we built some of the most secure systems on the planet. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a breach-free system. And if somebody tells you that, they're lying. But we've learned from the credit card companies, we've learned from the government um, that you know has to secure things. You know, what are the best ways that we can actually secure that and and make sure that that data is is never released? Today, most of our data, you can go to researchallofus.org and click on something called the data browser, um, and that's just a public view of sort of aggregate data of that'll tell you about what you and your other participants have done, right? So you'll see the things like, wow, there's 277,000 blood and urine samples in the biobank right now. And you can do some high level characterization, how many women have signed up, right? How many men have signed up in those kinds of things. Um, we've just launched the beta version of uh, what we call the researcher workbench. And this is where approved researchers will get access to deeper levels of data so not just that aggregate data um, and then you know that information over time once we um, we're soon we'll start um, genotyping and whole genome sequencing everybody you know that will be in the data set available to researchers over time and again we're working on ways to return that in appropriate way for example we don't want to just send you your genetic information and say good luck it's really can be really hard to understand we have a genetic counseling resource that we built nationally. So when we're ready to start doing this in the coming months, you know, it's not just that you'll get this email of some gobbledygook that you don't understand. We've really worked hard to translate it into, you know, everyday language that uh, even, you know, tr try to get down to fifth grade reading levels. And at the same time, there'll be a genetic counseling resource. Um, so you can decide, do I want to get health related information back? And if I do, you know, you, you can have access to a genetic counselor to help you make sense of it and even to share some of that data with your doctor so they could make sense of it. Um, so that, I mean, that's what happens with the data. The, the biosamples are stored in these large freezers with robots that have kind of Fort Knox security around them um, at the Mayo Clinic and on multiple sites because you wouldn't want electricity to go down and wipe out all of the biosamples. And, and the data is, um, is stored in a secure commercial cloud system that you know the banks and others use um, with only access to, uh, for those who can get it. I, as the former, as the founder of the program and now its chief innovation officer, like I couldn't get access to, to, to an individual's level data, right? You, only, only about five people can actually do that just to make sure the systems are working well. Wow, that's great to know. I mean, I think it's important to run all that out, you know, so people understand this is really secure. We're not just handing it out. It's, you know, not something where people are going to be able to track back to who you are. And that actually leads me to my next question, which I've been curious about for a while. How is the All of Us program different from the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies like 23andMe, because I've read a lot of stories about how the data is sold. And so tell me a bit about how all of us is different. Yeah, I mean, it's really an apples to oranges comparison or like an apples to tractors comparison. You can tell I'm a farmer. All my references are about fruit. So um, as, when I finish with you, I'll be out in the fields in a little bit uh, with our farms. Um, the 
I mean, you know, all of us is a long-term research program of which genetics is just one piece. There's genetic data, there's electronic health record data, there's survey data that people are filling out. There's already, I mentioned some wearable data that people are feeling, you know, that are sharing about their exercise. And that's because our goal as a public resource is to create the most largest, most diverse data set in history and let researchers make discoveries and science on that for free as quickly as possible. Um, you know, the commercial companies, you know, are taking individual data and you consent to it when you signed your agreement. So read those agreements really carefully. Um, read our consent really carefully because we, 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 we slow down our consent and put videos and things in it to make sure that people really understand what they're signing up for. But unlike those commercial companies, right, we, we're not selling people's data. I mean, it'll be available for free to qualified researchers who have gone through the training and the commitment to not, you know, make that data um, available. Now, another thing I'll point out is our data is all stored in the cloud. You can't copy it all over to your local PC. So the, they have to come to the data and use it in our secure environment, and they're not allowed to copy all of that data out, which is very different than a lot of the other things that are happening in the world. So, I mean, they're just, they're very, very different. Yes, we collect some genetic information and, and we will offer some ancestry and trait information back to their participants just because it's, many of them expressed interest in it and wanted it. And then we'll start sharing health-related genetic information with that genetic counselor, as I mentioned, when that's all ready to go and the FDA has approved it. But that's like one part of a much larger research program that is about an open public data resource that's not about you know making money. Now I, I will tell you that we had debate about this and people ask us, you know, will companies be able to access your data? And it's like if they agree to the same rules of the road that the academic or not-for-profit researchers do, then yes. In our beta right now, it's only primarily academic researchers who have what's called an ERA Commons account as we test our systems to make sure that you know everything is that all the security that we put in place is there that the tools are usable but you'll see us open up that access more and more to different scientific communities and eventually to citizen scientists because we really want even an individual who is interested in collecting data and, and doing science about the conditions that they're interested in to be able to have you know some access to that data as well which which again is unprecedented that's that's great to hear, and I think it's going to bring comfort to a lot of people. And now I'm going to pivot, and I'm going to ask you a fun question. Um, I wanted to know, when you were a kid, what did you imagine growing older would be like? You know, I, I, when I was a young, young kid, I was confused about what growing older would be like because I had two different role models, right? I had my mom's father, who was really my hero, my, my grandpa Kerr was really my hero um, and lived to be 99 and didn't take a medication until the last three months of his life. He was just an ox. He was so healthy and so loving and so much fun, so funny. Um, I, every When people tell me, you have Jack Kerr's bald spot. I'm like, I'm proud of it because if I could, if I could be affiliated with him in any way, shape or form, then gosh, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional here. Then I would be proud. And on the other end of the continuum, I had, you know, my my father's parents, my my grandmother, whose mind was great, but body was giving out due to rheumatoid arthritis way too early. And the opposite, you know, with my on my grandmother on my other side, you know, going through Alzheimer's. So I was a little afraid of it as a young kid because I saw how painful it could be. But I was a little excited by it because I saw how wonderful it could be. But, you know, mostly I wanted to be the, the Grandpa Kerr version. I wanted to be 
funny and loving and smart and, you know, doing a farm at age 98. And, you know, he smoked for a long time, but then at some point said, this is unhealthy and stopped, you know, on that day. He just had such strength of will and strength of character. And, and that's what I aspire for. Oh, that's great. Well, it sounds like you are on your way. And now, so I want to ask you now, what do you enjoy most about growing older? What I enjoy about growing older now is kind of different than what a lot of people may have been through, given that at age 19, they said, you know, you have a year to live. And they kept telling me that for the first 10 years until I of my 23-year cancer odyssey until I stopped listening. So I'm proud and feel victorious to have reached the age of 52. And the weird thing is I'm healthier now at age 52. And like my grandpa, Kerr, I'm, I've become passionate for farming and gardening. We're growing a massive garden and farm to be able to donate to the food bank here just because of COVID. And I just feel proud of it. Growing old is a gift and uh, I'm incredibly thankful for it. That's awesome. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on our show today. It's really been a pleasure and just um, wonderful talking to you. I think you are on your way to following in your grandfather's footsteps. So that's all for this week's episode. We encourage you to follow the Alliance on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Visit agingresearch.org to learn more about age-related conditions, diseases, and issues that impact the health of older Americans. And please subscribe now and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks, everybody, and have a great day.